Hitting record. There we go. Oh, we're recording. We are recording. Do you want to do the three, two, one, and then clap? Do it. All right. Three. Hold on. <laughs> three. Take two. Yeah. Three, two, one. Oh, there it that is. was intense. That was very intense. You really let it ring <laughs> through the mic on that one. Um, <clears throat> boop, boop, boop. Boop, boop, I'm, I'm Joe Rogan, and this is my friend Joe Rogan. No. Uh, I'm Ryan. I'm Harland. We're the Doddlers. And this is the Doddlers Philosophy Podcast. Son of a gun of a... Uh, and we are here today to talk to you about very, very serious things. No. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe. Um, we're a little bit discombobulated today, folks. Or folk. Or I don't know how to address. We have like five subscribers on YouTube and they're like all our family members. Um, <laughs> uh, whatever. Losers. Um, start somewhere. Yeah, so we're a little, we're all a little out of sorts, but but we're gonna get into sorts of things, <laughs> um, today, and it's gonna be, I think it has the potential to be really, uh, you know, enlightening, and it can be a difficult subject at times, um, especially if you spring it on people, Harland. When you do, when we're all having conversation, you're like, and we're all like, what the fuck? You know, Um, but otherwise, and we're all used to you springing shit on us anyway. That's a common response to this meme plex. It is. It's a very, it's a, well, you know, what's worse is usually, you know, we're talking about something and you have this position and we're like, God damn, this radical bitch. And like. Then, like, we say something, and then you get us with that, with this topic that we're about to talk about. And we're all like, we would tell you to get out, but back in the day, we'd have the thing at your house. So it was kind of, you know. That was awkward when I just had to go stand in the backyard <laughs> while the rest of you used my kitchen and bathroom. Yeah. Well, your your tomatoes looked great. All that tending to in the middle of the night. Um. <clears throat> anyway, so... Uh, do you want me to introduce the topic or should you introduce this topic? Well, I didn't know it was an option, but now I want to hear you do it. The topic is general semantics, people. All of a sudden, if you could hear like the, the feet running away, like scattering, like, oh no, not that one. Um, and it's a topic, a topic. It's an idea created by this guy by the name of Alfred Korzybski. And he was, you know, grew up and educated in Poland. Um, they seem to be well educated. I think he's more, I mean, Harlan will fill in the blanks here, but um, sort of a science engineering type of guy. Um, but you know, I'm sure back in the day, I don't know when, what year he was born. Again, Harlan will fill in those blanks. 1879, 1879, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> All right, well, according to Wikipedia, nice. 
Well, anyway, um, they probably had well-rounded educations. I bet the motherfucker spoke a bunch of languages. All that crap. And I don't know how the hell he got to America, but he did spend, I think, the latter half of his life in America. And he has this giant 900-plus page book or something like that called Science and Sanity. I have, like, a Selections from Science and Sanity book, um, and it's, it's, it's distributed by the Institute of General Semantics. So clearly he had some influence in the world. But um, <clears throat> General Semantics, as you might imagine, is kind of a linguistic type of uh, idea. At least that's my take on it, um, is that it very much has to do with language and how we speak. And so... Um, it can be kind of difficult, especially if, you know, it's new and you're in a philosophical discussion with somebody who is, you know, disarming you with it or whatever. Um, it can be kind of a strange thing to experience. And so anyway, uh, I will hand this over now to Harlan to fill in the blanks. When I mentioned you introducing it, I basically thought you were just going to say the word general semantics. Um, but that Well, was hold on. Wait. I, I honestly, <laughs> I, I thought I was just going to say the word general semantics, too. So that lets you into my process. Oh, I see. Oh, they, but you just can't, can't hold back. Once <laughs> the can't. floodgates are opened. I don't even have all the details, but I'm like, I'm saying it. You know, <laughs> like, I don't know when he was born, but I need to mention that he was born at some point. Yeah. Um, geez, can I find any gaps in what you just said? Uh, let's see. It, so one thing I was going to say about it was anyone who's listened to the Doddler's Philosophy Podcast so far is already familiar with a few general semantics techniques because I've been subtly sneaking this into my own speech patterns for a long time and attempting to persuade those in my immediate community to do so as well, and a few of them seem to have caught on. Uh, for example, we you'll often hear us say something like, Science 2018, mm. and that kind of stuff is general semantics. You'll hear a whole lot of me making lists of approximately three items followed by the... Latin phrase, etc., or the Americanization, etc., that sometimes mm. happens. Uh, that's general semantics. Huh. When we say words in a silly tone of voice in the middle of a sentence, like emergence, you know, when, you, when you stress certain words out of the rest of your sentence, to me that comes from general semantics. I still don't know if Korzybski literally invented this or only popularized it, but he was a big one in the spreading of the meme making air quotes. In his writing, he quoted lots of words, and in his speech, he would waggle his fingers in the air around particular words. So there are a few things about general semantics that have slipped out and into the broader zeitgeist. But in my opinion, this would be what I would nominate as the single most 
underappreciated set of ideas and book that I have yet encountered. It has had a influence, fair amount. Like Ryan mentioned, there are still, to this day, at least two in America, Institutes of General Semantics. I think one's in Texas and New York City. And they still have yearly meetings, and I think they still actively publish a journal called etc. And... But nevertheless, most people, in my experience, have never heard of it. I hadn't heard of it in my schooling. I had to discover it elsewhere from one of those dirty fringe uh, heretics that we're not supposed to pay attention to. Robert Anton Wilson turned me on to it, and then I found that I quite like it, and have been trying to do my best to spread it around since, hence making a podcast episode on it. Um, is that a good place for me to jump in? When I, yeah. When I be quiet for a minute, then... <laughs> often is an indicator that you are free to step in if you have anything if not go back to it yeah that's a good uh that's a good point do i have anything to say (laughs) um nothing so far has stood out to me so snip snip in the editing process (laughs) nice maybe not um yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't, you know. So as you mentioned, Korzybski is yeah, the wait, stop. Hold uh, major on. figure. Wait. Yeah, what? What's up? Who is this guy, Alfred Korzybski? <laughs> gotcha. Alfred Korzybski is, like you said, uh, he was born in Poland, did some stuff over there, studied engineering. Um, but... Another reason for us, dawdlers, to like him is that he's one of the few what they call independent scholars who has mm. done something that lasted. He wasn't a Harvard professor, you know. Right. He was in the military, and then he kind of came over here, and he was doing some arms shipping or just random stuff and reading lots of books and studying and talking to people, and he came up with this idea, and as far as I know was pretty much, quote-unquote, self-made, and uh, one of those American success stories that we used to have in the old days when someone could immigrate here and make it big. Right, right. So is he sort of similar in a way to the way that like James Lovelock <clears throat> was, where he wasn't really a part of any academy or institute, really? I mean, I think he did some contracting work and stuff, but... He was more or less independent, I guess. Would they be in the same kind of like you got Korzybski, you got Lovelock, you got, I don't know, somebody else? Sounds like it. I don't know Lovelock's life details well enough, but as I understand it, that's what Korzybski's story is. Okay. So, and he was kind of an interesting guy, both in his writing and then I even found in preparation for this meeting... I got a hold of my first recording of him speaking. He died mm. in 1950, so there aren't very many. And this one, you could literally hear the vinyl uh, scratching away in the background. But awesome. 
I found some 1947 recording where he was going through this stuff. And he had a very distinctive, low, powerful voice, but with a heavy accent. And he clearly... Like, there was a type of charisma there. And there was also some interesting anecdotes. (laughs) Because one of the things that I'm curious about is... This is a relatively unknown guy, work, and field. But I think there's a lot of value here. So is there an explanation for that gap? The standard explanation for the gap is uh, Science and Sanity was 1933, and when it came out, I'm told, it was well-received by many mainstream academics and intellectuals but that in the 40s not too long afterwards an even more influential individual martin gardner included general semantics as i think the last chapter the crown jewel of his kind of debunking pre-neo-skeptic book fads and fallacies in the name of science and he was denouncing general semantics as quackery because Korzybski himself perceived general semantics to be a type of psychiatric treatment for right. various ills that he called unsanity. And that, you know, the, the, obviously he called his major work, Science and Sanity, and he thought that he was applying the best science of his day to reformulate the structure of the English language so that it would create, literally, more sane, sober, successful human beings. I wonder to what extent he would even maybe be accused of delusions of grandeur type Mm. Uh, right right i i didn't i i thought i read somewhere in uh, in his own writing that he saw it sort of as therapy i think that was the word that he used um yeah he used that word often so my my question is and i should probably save this for later but i'll fucking forget is you said something a second ago where you're like, he's trying to restructure English language or whatever so that people use it in a more sober, sane kind of way. Um, is it possible that he is sort of a unique individual with a particular kind of perspective, English likely not being his native language, Polish being probably the best candidate, um, and that that gave him some insight as to, you know, with all the reading that he was doing, all the the research, um, that, you know, maybe he was kind of a special individual to be able to do this. Do you think at all? Because, I mean, you've read it a lot more. You've gone to the lengths to get copies of his, you know, uh, you know recordings, his rare recordings. Um what do you think? I mean, do you think anyone could have come up with this idea and he just is the one to do it? Or do you think he had any unique perspective that 
you know, just historically, it's beneficial to him alone. I would say not only did he not have a unique perspective, but that this is to some extent a Darwin Wallace type scenario. Because at basically the same time, say Peer and Worf were coming out with their stuff, the in the trajectory of those anthropologists through sociologists into linguists, starting with Franz Boas or however you say that guy and his student, Edward Sapir and his student, Benjamin Lee Worf. That's uh -huh. all their work on what has now been labeled linguistic relativity. And most of the time when I encounter that idea in the literature or in the culture, it's referred to as the Sapir-Worf hypothesis, that your language can influence your perceptions, thoughts, and behavior. I prefer Korzybski's version, and I think that he did more to develop a system around it and some tools for dealing with what he saw as problems with English. Whereas Zapier and Worf were more interested in cataloging, I think, facts. They didn't really, they weren't therapists. They didn't try to develop huh. some system to fix it. So that's another interesting one to me. Why does no one mention Korzybski when we're talking about Sapir Worf? I don't know. But anyway, I don't think there are aspects in which he was not unique. Other people were even making similar claims at the same time. But they weren't developing entire non-Aristotelian systems. What the hell is non-Aristotelian? Give me some background, man. We will get there. Excellent. I don't think we should get there yet. Um, I wanted to briefly retell a quick story that Korzybski told in this recording and to indicate perhaps something about his personality. And I wonder if that explains in, in any degree why general semantics itself didn't take off. Um, in this audio recording, he was telling a story about a 25-year-old student who, claim, who came to a general semantics seminar. As is reported to Korzybski and then to me through him, <laughs> this individual had migraine headaches their entire life. For 25 years, they'd basically always have a migraine. And as I was standing up there giving my speech on general semantics, of course I wasn't attempting to treat headaches in any way. I was just teaching people about extensional orientation and the other general semantics tools. And this guy comes up to me after the lecture and says, Oh, Alfred, Al, you cured my headache. How is this possible? And he said, oh, I don't know. That's an interesting little tidbit there. I, you know, I can, of course, I'm using the tools of general semantics to alter your colloidal structures or whatever his 1933 biology <laughs> story of what's going on in the nervous system was. But then, so he cures guy's headache and they part. But then a few months later, the, per the headache kid contacts him again and says, ah, oh, my migraines have come back. 
And Korzybski says, well, have you been practicing general semantics? <laughs> no, I just came to your lecture and I liked it, but I haven't been implementing all the tools that you asked me to. Well, of course, that's why your headache came back. Why don't you come and train with me for a month and we'll see. And then the story goes that they did this intensive training in general semantics. And then the headache went away again. And then I talked to him five years later and it had never come back. And, and so that this concentrating on various structural and grammatic facts about English apparently <laughs> adjusts a person's nervous system and bio, biophysiology to such extent that they that he can cure headaches uh Blackery. and that's kind of, right so that to me explains why someone might think that this person is a quack and he has a little story that's in science and sanity about that i also find super dubious he's like i was on a ship and someone came into my quarters and they were i was going to teach them about general semantics and i pulled out a chair to sit down in and the little folding chair buckled as I was about to sit in it. But I did not fall to the floor, because wizards of general semantics are so wise in the ways of the uniqueness of every object and every event that I realize I'm not just sitting in a chair and it's going to support my weight, but rather every seating event is unique and different and it could always fail. And since I'm so aware of the non-identity and I'm so fully conditional I can no one can pull the chair out from under me oh, uh, Jesus. I find that kind of stuff to me indicates a, a quirky individual perhaps perhaps but go on in my tradition I think it's time to read a quote mm. are we still near enough to beginning yeah <laughs> we gotta alienate our 1.5 listeners. I guess it's 0.5 now. So this will kind of give you a taste. We'll finish up our taste of getting what Korzybski is like, and then we can, to some extent, forget the guy and get down to the ideas, because that's what we're about here anyways. Right? All right. So one of the he's a very repetitive writer. One of the places where he kind of states the theme and general thrust of the whole work is this quote the rest of this volume is devoted to showing that the common aristotelian system and language which we inherited from our primitive ancestors differs entirely in structure from the well-known and established 1933 structure of the world ourselves and our nervous systems included such antiquated map language by necessity must lead us to semantic disasters as it imposes and reflects its unnatural structure on the structure of our doctrines and institutions. This once understood, we shall see clearly that researches into the structure of language and adjustment of this structure to the structure of the world and ourselves, as given by science at a date, must lead to new language, new doctrines, institutions, etc., and may result in a new and saner civilization involving new semantic reactions, which may be called the scientific era. So that's what he thinks that he can bring about. He's like, we got all this primitive, mistaken, antiquated, Aristotelian garbage. 
that's become enmeshed with English over the years. But he's going to fix all of that for us and lead us into a new scientific era where everyone is sane. <laughs> nice. Um, that's not uh, grandiose at all, yeah. Yeah. So... To move forward, we'll move backwards. Yeah, I know. I'm like, come on now. Because I'm like, I want to ask about Aristotle. Oh, we're still not going to go back that far, though. I want to... There's some degree of order that I think it will be helpful to present this in, in order to kind of build up what hopefully is a reasonable and sane and non-grandiose version of general semantics. Mm-hmm that I think starts even before, a decade before Science and Sanity, in Korzybski's first book, Manhood of Humanity, where he engaged in the process of attempting to develop a definition of a man. (laughs) Uh, Of course, we're just going to go with it for now, with a nod towards realizing that his terminology is male chauvinist and it was 1919 and whatever we don't we're not going to worry about that for now so he wanted to come up with a functional definition to indicate what counts and it to me it doesn't even really matter if it's man or human but rather that it's just an interesting category or class of life that seems important and distinguished from the others. Okay. He doesn't want it to just be like featherless biped type. He wants it to be something else. So, Korzybski's definition for humanity, what brought us into the manhood of humanity, is the ability or characteristic that he called time binding. So, that'll be our first general semantics concept that we try to get an understanding of. So what the fuck is time binding? Yeah, what is it? This is another idea that I think, and this will be a motif that comes up a lot through this meeting because I think he anticipated many things that we are only in the last 20, 10, 5 years getting around to, but it was established by Korzybski a long time ago. Like, I hear a lot of talk about this nowadays, that we accumulate signals over time. I think that's basically, that's one definition of time binding. It's just the idea that because we have symbolism and writing, that we are able to pass from one generation to another the knowledge, quote-unquote knowledge, accumulated by a previous generation. That's something that only or only to an infinitely extendable degree, perhaps. I don't know. You can tell me if you think that's reasonable or if you want to say that other critters also can pass signals across generations. But that's something we're good at. Most other animals don't seem to be very good at. All right, this isn't working yet, but let me do this other part. Okay, so 
I think another potential explanation for why general semantics has not been very successful is that Korzybski is a really bad meme smith. His <laughs> coinages are poor. I mean, even general semantics itself, I don't think, is a very good term. Mm-hmm. He talks about the idea is that he wanted to have just a very broad study of humanity. He wa- he wanted to call it general anthropology, but he thought that was kind of already taken. <laughs> So a lot of these terms that he came up with, I think, are bad, including time binding. But all right, let's talk, consider a similar and the previous one that we could call space binding. So what is this whole idea of bind, you know, binding, whatever? I think it comes to harnessing a dimension to your projects. So like... Space binding would just be developing a body that can locomote. Yeah. Does that make sense? That makes so sense. So if one of your projects is acquire food or whatever, you are a space binder if you can efficiently and intelligently trot in the correct direction to acquire some food. You have bound space to your purposes. So different types of animals evolve different types of bodies and can, to varying degrees, utilize those bodies to manipulate themselves and chunks of their environment by the location dimension so that they can achieve some of their goals. And then you've got different structure he talks about structure all the time as you can already tell from that quote <laughs> there are different structural features about the bodies that make them more or less efficient at locomoting in various media some cheetahs or something really good on relatively open spaces on land not so good in the water not so good in the sky Sharks, really good in the water, not so good on the land, etc. So that there's various structural facts about the mechanism of binding whatever dimension it is. So the mechanism of space binding is a body, and the mechanism of time binding is a language. Hmm. Does that make sense? Um, keep going. And just I mean, as different bodies are better at binding the spatial dimensions to your purposes, different languages seem as though they might be better or worse, have various benefits and flaws at harnessing that binding time to your purposes of exchanging messages across space and or time and that then that's what general semantics would be so that's a partial justification of the terminology while also explicating it so general semantics is just the study of the mechanism of time binding like physiology might be the study of the mechanism of space binding Right. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know the space binding one, of course, comes quite 
naturally when you say the body is a mechanism, you know, for space binding. Um, that language is the, is the mechanism for time binding. Maybe I missed something. I don't think I did, but maybe I did. And I'm still unsure as to, can you just say it again for me at least? Um, why language is the mechanism for time binding? How else are we going to pass knowledge, quotes, waggling fingers in the air, from one generation to another across time? We need to have some medium of encoding, codifying the information that we can then put in a library, etch into a rock, do with whatever we do so that we can pass it down. Okay. Or just, you know, lay on your deathbed and say it. You know, here's my wisdom that you <laughs> need to hear, family, as I pass away. Yep. So that it's a mechanism for exchanging information across time. Any of us right now can click around on the internet or, heaven forbid, go to a library and access the quote-unquote knowledge of Plato and Aristotle and Alfred Korzybski, though they're long gone. What allows us to do that is that they were time-binders who wrote some things down. In a language that we can access later. I mean, I can... I can get it's a, I maybe I'm a total idiot, but I I get these two things separately, but I can't see how they're similar. <laughs> I'm not saying that it's you haven't said it already like multiple times, but I'm just like trying to find the way the analogy works, and maybe I should spend less time on that and just worry about, you know, okay, I think I have an understanding of time binding. That's what I'll say. Okay, that's good. I think. The point, and maybe it'll just come out better as we move on, but I'm just trying to say that they're, these two things are similar in that they are both bindings, meaning harnessing a dimension and affordance, again to hearken to a previous episode, <laughs> to harness a dimension to your purposes. And then each of them has a mechanism which allows, facilitates the achievement of that project. And then as soon as you have a mechanism, you have a structured object of inquiry that we can look at the body or the language and say, what are some features of this body slash language that make various activities more or less efficient. What can it do? What can't it do? What's it good at? What does it suck at? Let's look at the machine and reverse engineer it and figure out what what it's doing and what it can do. All right, well, all, all that makes sense to me. I just haven't had that aha in the comparison, but hmm. I don't know how necessary it is to have that aha. And it's it could just be me tonight. Time binding. Yeah, right. Um, you know, and if I were to listen to this later, be like, you idiot. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm just like, God damn it. What is that thing? 
I'm guessing that you're feeling like you've said it multiple times now. <clears throat> I could be the the one, you know, person who just doesn't get it. And one and a half listeners are like, come on, can we get to the rest? Um, yeah. So for that, I apologize. Well, we're going to, we'll move on and we'll see. Maybe it'll click. Maybe it won't. And I don't know. Okay. Maybe it could easily be my fault in the presentation also. Uh, but that's where we're going to start. So we've got as some of our concepts, these are the the binding and the whole time binding, and then that there's a mechanism that facilitates it, and general semantics is the study of the mechanism of time binding. So what else is it? <laughs> and now we can <laughs> finally, as you wanted to, we can dig back into the Greeks a bit and do some Aristotle in... Well, we can contra Aristotle. So I think it's even the subtitle of Science and Sanity, right? A non-Aristotelian system. What the hell does that mean? Mm -hmm. So some of Korzybski's biggest influences include, well, for one, and that we've already talked about a little bit earlier, was Pavlov. That's, I think, where he got a lot of his kind of therapy through conditioning orientation that he's going to look at human beings as these physical objects that are manipulable and can be conditioned through training. He was in a lot of this. He wanted (laughs) people train, come back and train with me. Yeah. So he's going (laughs) to physically alter your nervous system by the use of words and he made this object called the structural differential that you were supposed to handle while you did it and whatever but so that his version of therapy is supposed to be a he's altering your the structure of your nervous system and i think he got that from pavlov so that was a big influence and then he did a lot of mathematics and i think he really liked poincare in that realm and for his metaphysics, he got a lot of that from Alfred North Whitehead, and where I think he picked up his influence of the whole organism as a whole, in environment as a whole, his holism, I think comes from Whitehead. But probably the person referenced most often in Science and Sanity is Einstein. Right. Uh, 1919 through 1933, right in the the appreciation of general and special relativity, they came out in what, like 1905 and the teens, through the teens, and then they started being influential through the 20s into the 30s, and they influenced Korzybski a lot, as well as a mathematician being aware of the I I really suck at the dates on this, but the non-Euclidean geometries was that more like 1850s, 1870s? I don't know. But, so he was impressed by this pattern of movement in both yeah. mathematics and physics, where at some time you have a very particular system based on accepting certain laws or axioms, like Newtonian physics or Euclidean geometry. But that subsequent analysts can work on it and through denying 
at least one or more of the axioms or laws, develop a broader system that is also consistent and which the previous set is a special case that we, when we make a non-Euclidean geometry or a non-Newtonian physics, Euclidean geometry and Newtonian physics still work. They just, they work on a restricted domain of cases and they become a special case of the non-X version. If that makes sense. So, right. to make a non-Aristotelian system... Korzybski is looking at the what are nowadays called the three laws of thought that we attribute primarily to Aristotle. The law of non-contradiction, the law of the excluded middle, and the law of identity. That for a long time, and by many people, I think up till today... Many people think those are, I don't know, they you hear the phrase self-evident thrown around or a priori or necessary. A lot of people take those <laughs> Aristotelian law, they are willing to abide by those laws. Korzybski was an outlaw and he wanted to deny at least, I think to, I, he might oh. have arguably denied all of them at various times. But the one that he concentrated on the most was the law of identity, which is often read simply, A is A. Korzybski comes along and says, what the fuck are you talking about? No, it's not. You philosopher, you know, again, <laughs> seeing himself as a, more as a scientist. Have we done that m m episode yet where we talk about the difference between science and philosophy? No. Not yet. So, Korzybski make wants to make a non-Aristotelian system by denying the law of identity. Aristotelian logic, still totally great, acceptable. It's a fun game. It's a nice tool. It's a special case. And Korzybski thinks that we should develop a broader one because his primary argument against A is A is to be an empiricist, I think. He says, all right, you can stipulate that from your armchair, but I'd like you to show me a case. And if you cannot <laughs> produce a case, then I'm not going to adopt A is A as a law or a necessary truth. It's just a game rule in a very particular and specific type of logic but no one can produce an object that is self-similar everything in our experience is according to this uh, Einsteinian Whiteheadian influenced individual absolutely unique Nothing exists in isolation, and nothing is the same as anything, including itself. Do, you write it out on a piece of paper, literally. A is A. Well, those two things aren't the same. One is on the left, one is on the right. One was written before the second one was written. 
They, those two things are different. Well, that's not what I meant. I mean that this A right here on the left is it the same as itself. Oh, really? Some time has passed between when you pointed at it those two times. Maybe the ink has dried on the paper and some of it went through to the table and now it's made of different atoms. Whatever, I don't know. No. Korzybski thinks that a positive instance can't be empirically produced to back up the law of identity. And so he thinks that the negative premise, the word is not the thing, the map is not the territory, is a more certain starting point, more persuasive, more <laughs> acceptable, wiser starting point to avoid this identification. And that's one of the first things that he thinks is part of the unsanity of the English-speaking world, is that there's a whole bunch of identity included in it. There's a whole bunch of is statements. And he's saying, stressing, claiming, no word is the object spoken about. So when you make a sentence made entirely out of words, you're necessarily saying something that is strictly false because you just made a bunch of words and think that you made claims about reality. And that any, and that you can't ever say all about an object. Take this pencil, this beer bottle before me, and start listing traits about it. Take it into the lecture hall and ask your hundred students, and they will come up with more things. No one can ever say all there is to say about an object, and empirically we can't discover identity. Hence, non-Aristotelian system. Okay, so what I... what pops up into my head when you are saying all those things is... is the law of identity, A is A, and all the little quirks about, well, you got... this one's on the right, or atoms could have changed from the time that you wrote the A to the time that you pointed at it, you know, or whatever. How does that, how is, how is refuting that a part of a mechanism of time binding? Um, what? <laughs> okay. The Well, okay, wait, 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 if time binding is, if general semantics is the study of the mechanism of time binding, um, you know, and you know, it's general semantics is a non-Aristotelian system, correct? Oh, yeah. I think I might know what you're asking, yeah. Okay. All right. So then um, do they do they relate or is this law of identity thing something, I mean, how exclusive is it from the time binding or, you know, how similar is it, you know, that kind of thing? How much does it overlap? I think this ties into the time binding thing through... The reason that he's even looking at it is that first you notice, so we're looking at the mechanism, English, the time-binding mechanism, and we say, well, what are some interesting, important facts about this machine? 
One of them is, there's a bunch of is's all over it. Mm-hmm. And where did that come from? Well, we think we can attribute it to this old-timey philosopher. Okay. Is there a good reason? Can we come up... Do we like that fact about English? Or is that something that maybe we want to improve? Okay. So then my question is... It, Does that answer the question? I think so. Um but uh it's like you're is basically reverse engineering or whatever I think you've got a engine and you want to figure okay well here's my machine and what is it for it moves this car and you look at some details about it and you say oh well okay here's this carburetor thing and it's doing this job is it good at that job why is it like it is could it be better should it be changed so he looks at English and he sees all of these ises of identity all over it and notices, wait a minute, why do these English speakers keep walking around and saying that the map is the territory when it is obviously not? So that that, does that, I mean, I'm trying to say why and how this counts as the study of the mechanism of time binding, because it's, Included in the study of English is noticing that there are a bunch of ises in it and then normatively reasoning from there to do we like that? Do we want to change it? Well, I mean, I guess that's what I was thinking was based on the idea of time binding and its knowledge preservation component. um, Wouldn't you want that? Like, wouldn't you want A to remain A? As you traverse back, I mean, traverse forward and you go, okay, well, you know, like it's an instance in time and you want that instance in time to be what it is so that you can go back to it and see how things changed. Or do I not, do I not get the definition of time binding still? And I thought I did. And I'm just like, you know, I, you know, that's, if things are accumulating, do they not then stay in the bag? You know, like. Or do they themselves change entirely? If we're time-binding, I would think that you'd want to be able to say, uh, well, maybe I have it the reverse or something, but, um, you know, I get the notion that things change. That's actually not a, that's not, that's that's like a really effective way to talk about it. You got one on the right, one on the left, or molecules could have changed or whatever. It's, you know, the piece of paper is, you know, has maybe space binding components to it or whatever it's over here, then it's over there or something. I don't know. Um, But when I'm just trying to see, like, maybe I don't understand time binding, but I'm trying to see like, okay, how does it work in that way? And and maybe that's again, me just dribbling on here. Um, Quick, steal the ball away from me and dunk it. What you want doesn't matter. (laughs) Does that count? That travel. <laughs> um, so I, what I heard you as asking something like, "Well, wouldn't ises be a good thing if what you want to do is bind time to your purposes? Because ises are an efficient way to do that. If something is what it is in 1905, then it." When I read it in 2018, it just would be the same thing because A is A, and that would be very efficient. 
way for me to learn what Einstein said or something like Is that kind of what you're getting at? I think so. Aren't is's really good at time binders? Yeah. And maybe so, but that seems to be the wrong question or definitely a different question than Krzyzewski's asking. Because science doesn't care what you want or what you believe. He wants our mechanism of time binding, our language, to reflect whatever the best current available scientific worldview is. And if that doesn't include essentialist Aristotelian identities, then we shouldn't allow them to be prevalent in our language. Whether or not they're efficient time-binders, your language will just be broken and mistaken and lead you to all sorts of unsane behaviors. So then do we not want to accumulate project progress and rather we want to abandon certain components in order to move on to something that's more up-to-date? Alfred Korzybski, quote, The explanation is astonishingly simple and easily verified. Ryan. How did he know he'd be talking to you? The present non-Aristotelian system is based on fundamental negative premises, namely the complete denial of, quote, identity, which denial cannot be denied without imposing the burden of impossible proof on the person who denies the denial. See how simple this is? If we start, for instance, with a statement that a word is not the object spoken about, and someone tried to deny that, he would have to produce an actual physical object, which would be the word. Impossible of performance, even in asylums for the mentally ill. <laughs> this general denial of the is of identity gives the main fundamental non-Aristotelian premise which necessitates a structural treatment. The status of negative premises is much more important and secure than that of positive is of identity. Uh, Any map or language to be of maximum usefulness should in structure be similar to the structure of the empirical world. That's, I think, what he is trying to say to you about this. It, You're going about it not necessarily in reverse, but from the wrong direction. We don't just want to look at what aspects of our time-binding mechanism would be the best at exchanging messages across time, but we want to exchange some sort of epistemic qualifier in front of it, messages. We want to exchange true messages, or useful messages, or productive ones. We want to he wants our language to be of maximum usefulness, and he thinks that the only way we can do that is if it, in structure, is similar to the structure of the empirical world. So if the empirical world doesn't have any identities in it, our language shouldn't have any identities in it either. I just thought of a reason as to why general semantics isn't a thing out there the way people... Uh, you know, the way other things are things out there. And that mm -hmm. is that you quote him and then you re 
like paraphrase him in Harlan speak. And maybe it's that I'm more used to listening to you talk than Gorgipsky's words spoken, but you seem to have a better handle on being able to communicate these things than he was. And maybe it's just, you know, the time binding issue. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, maybe it's the, it was written a long time ago. He's not a native English speaker, et cetera. Who knows what the reasons for that are? Yeah. So, I mean, you clearly then spent a lot of time because if I understand you, then, um, you know, a T sub one is not a T sub two or whatever, you know, clearly, um, a T sub one is not, you know, it, it, you can't, you know, it's, it's, it's illogical. I tell you to say a C T sub one is a T sub two, because there could be things that have transpired between those two events or two moments, instances, um, and he wants the T sub one component included in the statements that we make about whatever. So that when you go back over it and you look at it later, uh, you have some means of, you know, it's almost like a temporal coordinate system in a way. It seems to me, am I, am I, am I getting that sort of better now? Well, one what you were describing right there is literally one of the tools that Korzybski wants to train everybody in that he called indexing, and it's putting the little sub in beneath things in order to remind ourselves that nothing is identical even to itself over time. Right. And but that is that not how it is a is a you know the re- refutation of a is a is that not how it's related to time binding as a mechanism that you want to not have it it doesn't persist through time it it changes and so to refer to that a as unique in its temporal coordinate or whatever um is you know better than to go around thinking that it lasts forever and is unchanging when empirical science would tell us that that's crazy to think of it in that way i often don't have a high degree of confidence when i make analyses of this type but my current opinion is you don't get time binding and you keep bringing it up in contexts in which it doesn't apply shit and so i don't get your question oh crap all right well um i guess i don't get time binding then back to that's concept not, one. that's not good yeah we, we need <laughs> that well i guess we don't really i don't know um what i don't think this is the important part of what you were saying but one of the things that i thought you were getting at is the Korzybskian refutation of the law of identity is just that everything is supposed to be indexed. Therefore, in order to express it, you would be saying A sub 1 is A sub 2. And everybody can quickly see that that's false. So as soon as you implement some of the general semantic tools, then it becomes clear. You've bound it to time. 
What? <laughs> okay. Oh. That's li- okay. That's like saying science 2018 or whatever. Yeah. That's not time binding. No. Oh my God. All right. Um, we're in trouble we are in Um, trouble and your space binding doesn't work either then fuck i mean i mean i get it i think this is terrible (laughs) (laughs) this is totally like this guy's what the fuck you know i don't want to say like i don't want to be mean but like this guy sucks come on help help well, don't blame him. It would have to be me that's sucking. Mm, I kind of so get adding... the sense that he might have a little suckage going on. I'm just having a little sense. I want to hear his voice. I want to hear him talk. Oh, well, yeah, we'll link you to the thing. You can. Mm. Um, okay, We're putting twenty science 2018, Korzybski calls the extensional device of dating. And that's a similar task to this indexing idea ant number one is not ant number two is not ant number three they have many similarities but they are in other ways unique individuals this one's pincer has this protein in it and that other one's pincer has a different protein in it so even though they may be indistinguishable to you when you're in the lineup and you're asking which ant took your purse but there's still, this one is under the number one, and this one's under the number three, and they are unique individuals. And so if we want to recognize that in our language, we might do well to add a little index behind each one. Dating is very similar. Science, to the extent that exists at all, it's a very high-level abstraction. That's another thing General Semantic cares about is orders of abstracting. We'll see if we ever get to any of that stuff, but... <laughs> When we are evaluating claims, quote-unquote, scientifically, we only have access to the science at this date, and then, because of time-binding, to previous dates, but in a different way and to a different degree. And we don't have much, if any, access to science... 2118. So it's a more absolutist statement if one simply claims that's unscientific or something like that, right? Just period. Korzybski thinks it's a saner and more epistemically responsible behavior to say, well, as far as I know, that doesn't accord well with science 2018. But we're well aware of the any of us who have any degree of historicist leanings in us are aware that what the scientific community's consensuses are change over time. So that when Korzybski is writing Science and Sanity, he talks about Science 1933 often. Because Science 1933 includes concepts that science 2018 either doesn't include or doesn't much. Yet the standard examples being things like caloric fluid, ether, these other, uh, the geocentric solar system, other things that at one point were considered scientific, no longer are, 
And I was saying this example, and I don't know because I don't know enough about Science 2018, but Korzybski talks a lot about colloids, and I guess that's a term from some biologist named Childs or something. Just, do, do we care about colloids anymore? Colloids? That's kind of, I think what I... Colloids? Sure. <laughs> but I don't know that... Okay, con- so that's also part of Science 2018. But anyway, that's the thing we can do. We can say, here's a concept. Is it part of science at date X? So that's okay. another just device. I think I get it. That, You're talking about indexing. And that's... but so Indexing and dating and whatever. And that is totally separate from time binding. When you say, according to Science 2018, blah, 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 you are not... I mean, you are time binding because you're saying something in English. But... Adding a date to science, that's not at all what time binding is. So what's the actual definition of time binding? Not not using space binding to help you, because it doesn't, in my opinion, in my experience so far. What is time binding itself without reference to anything else? According to the Institute of General Semantics website 2018... Here's their definition of time binding. Or I guess, I don't know if it's a definition, but here's a paragraph that they wrote under the words time binding. (laughs) Only humans have demonstrated the capability to build on the accumulated knowledge of prior generations. Korzybski referred to this capability as time binding and declared it as the primary difference between humans and animals. Language and the symbolizing capabilities to record, document, and transmit information serves as the principal tool that facilitates time binding. So the parts of that that are definitional to me seem to be the phrase the capability to build on accumulated knowledge of prior generations. Okay. And so then what is indexing? Indexing is just a thing that you do separate. I mean, it's not separate, but it's like if you're going to study the mechanism of time binding, you're going to use the tool of indexing. I guess that's what my question was. No. That's not included in the study of time binding. Study of the me- it's not included in general semantics. Is it I mean it's is it how is it included in the study of the mechanism of time binding? I don't think it's included in the study. It, that's one of the tools for mitigating the unsanity created by the current status of the mechanism of time-binding called English. So for, what you get when you do the study of English is you notice factors about it like identification the is of identification all over the place. Then, Korzybski also includes in the practice of general semantics tools to help mitigate the problematic features of English. So if one agrees that identification is, number one, something English does a lot, number two, problematic, and leads to unsanity, then what are we going to do to try to fix that? 
And indexing is a tool to attempt to alleviate the unsanity created by English having a prevalence of identification. Okay. <laughs> um. So here's, let, let, I'll run another one of those. So you go look at English and you compare English to the science of the of some given date because we want our language to reflect the best epistemic standards that are available and Korzybski thinks that those the best epistemic standards are contained in contemporary science at any given date so you go look at English and you notice that one of the things it does is to split verbally or lexically into two or more words something that is not ever split empirically or in science. For example, emotions and intellect in human beings. Mm -hmm. What science sees when you go out and behave and interact in your environment, you're interacting with an entire organism. You can't really address someone's emotions alone. They just say, you know, respond to me emotionally <laughs> with no intellectual input at all. We can kind of talk that way, but it's also kind of nutty to do it, right? There's no... Probably almost everything, if not everything, that is a human response includes some influence from what we call the emotions and some influence from what we call the intellect. But those are very distinct and separate terms in English. We have a word for them, and they supposedly refer to distinct concepts and one might be fooled into thinking that they referred to unique features of our universe that every human has an emotional module and an intellectual module or something and they're always at war in there and they want to take control or who knows what <laughs> but Korzybski's saying just because we have English words that are distinct and try to split nature along into those two camps, emotions and intellect, science doesn't see that. We just have in whole organisms and they have responses and we interact with them. And that there's no, we don't think, Korzybski thinks that, 1930, that science 1933 doesn't think that you can split emotions and intellect. Or, to use another simple example, space and time. Again, he was Einstein-influenced, and we were in all of this Einstein-Minkowski space-time and developing mathematics that worked and all that way and always included at least a four-dimension. We have English word for space and English word for time. Korzybski says, oh yeah, show me some. Show me some space with zero duration or a duration with no 
extension. And since those are in the same way as show me something in complete isolation or something that's identical, you can't do it. He His term for that is false to facts. You can't produce an instance. And if you can't produce an instance, well, then as a scientist, I don't buy it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, to slam him for being a bad mimeticist, what he called that was elementalism. And I don't know really why or what the what his motivation to label it that way was. But he was saying English is an elementalistic language, English 1933, which means oftentimes it has, it splits verbally something that is not split in experience. Like emotions, intellect, space, time, mind, body. He has a bunch of examples. So that he notices that about English. He compares it to science 1933. He says the English doesn't reflect science well, so we should fix that. Then he comes in with a tool that he thinks will mitigate the negative effects of that, uh, that he just called hyphenation, and he made a bunch of hyphenated words that were unusual at the time and still are. Like, he always hyphenated the word psychology or psycho-logics. He always hyphenated that. And other, and he did that in other, you know, space-time, it was always a hyphenated space-time. He didn't talk about space and time. Because he thinks that if we were to write, speak, and think with these hyphenated terms, rather than the elementalistic split terms, that we would, that our language would more reflect the structure of our science, and we would therefore be more sane and develop saner institutions and everything would be fixed and we'd be in a new era. <laughs> so anyway, the point of running through that was to for me to try to give another example that was like how indexing and dating are tools to m- mitigate the unsane institution of identification. Hyphenating is a tool to mitigate the unsane institution of elementalism. Okay. Um, my sense in this conversation is that, um, and I'm I'm keeping in mind this, you know, nine hundred page manuscript. Uh, that. You know, Korzybski had a whole bunch of different things kind of running almost seemingly in parallel or whatever at a certain level, like in the hierarchy of how he structured his, uh, you know, his ideas and books and all that kind of stuff. Um, And for me, I guess what I keep coming back to to be able to orient myself is (laughs) is <laughs> that was an extra they had a little extra oomph on that one um was there is the idea that okay general semantics is uh the study of the mechanism of time binding and now these are all these things that somehow fall under that um you know big idea and 
I'm, I guess I'm trying to keep track and I'm trying to connect these things. And so it's what I'm having trouble with clearly is um, connecting the law of identity and maybe some of these other ones like excluded middle, et cetera. The, the tools that he uses hyphenation uh, indexing and all that kind of stuff back to the study of the mechanism of time binding time binding being uh, something, I guess what the capability to build on the accumulated knowledge of prior generations. Um, yep. Is of identity inhibits that capability. Let's add a word to our definition of general semantics and see if everything all falls out real quick and easy. <laughs> general semantics is the study and improvement of the mechanism of time binding. The mechanism of time binding, in our case, being the English language. Time binding being the capacity to transmit signals across the generations. Improvement being reforming the mechanism to reflect the best current available arguments. And then whatever your epistemic gold medalist is. And for Korzybski, that was what he called science at any given date. And so general semantics wants to, one, look at English and see what English... 1933, English 2018, see what it's like, what it's doing. How does this mechanism work? How does this machine work? What are some facts that we can notice about it? Then we go to Science 2018. And then we compare the two. And we say, all right, does our existing machine well accord with what our best available epistemology indicates? Where it doesn't, let us attempt to reform our language to accord with our science. Does that help? Yeah. So that's a, it's quite, there's, there's feedback between the two. The epistemology, which for Korczybski and others would be science, and the mechanism, which this moment is English. And yep. we want to make sure that they they jive. Right. And it could be anything else. Of course, you know, we're, as English speakers, we're obsessing about English. Any natural language could fill that role. And maybe even some artificial languages could fill the role of the mechanism. There's a lot of different time-binding mechanisms. And there are, I don't know if I should say a lot, but there are multiple candidates for epistemic gold medalist and one could still be a general semanticist as long as that was the g general game they were playing give me a language give me a set of arguments and then let me see if the language well reflects structurally is isomorphic to that which my epistemology indicates it ought to say and then let's develop tools or alter alter the language to fit with the epistemology. And when he 
talked about the law or talked about looking at this mechanism called English, he looked at its use of, say, this, you know, Aristotelian idea called the law of identity and said that doesn't help build on the accumulated knowledge that we have at this point. Correct? No. Oh, fuck. It's not that... Okay, so the first step was fine. You look at English and you notice that it has an Aristotelian tendency to identify a lot. But then you're not comparing that tendency to would that be good at time-binding? That's not what you... Remember, we're comparing the facts about the language to the science of a date. So you say, okay, English has identity in it. Does science 1933 have identity in it? Nope. We need to change English to accord with science. So we're not asking, what do we think would be an efficient method of transferring signals over time? That's not the question. The question is, does our method of transferring signals over time well accord with our current best available arguments? If English has identity in it, but Science 1933 does not have identity in it, we need to reform English to take identity out. Whether or not we think a language with identity would be good at binding time, that doesn't... I don't know why this... This is the same hang-up we've been on, I think, right? I thought we were making progress, and then we went right back to it. Well, I'm wondering if, like, I'm just not saying it right back to you but that maybe I have a sense for it because that's confusing because I kind of thought, well, the whole point is the study of the mechanism of time binding. That's general semantics. And the, and time binding is considered perhaps one definition, the capability to build on the accumulated knowledge of prior generations. Does that mechanism, <clears throat> yeah, Study of the mechanism. I think it's time binding is the issue. I'm not quite sure. Time binding is a. It's not. It's not a. It's very um, amorphous at the moment for me. I guess maybe that's what it is. The other stuff, like the epistemology and, you know, you know, does science 28, you know, does, does our language accord with science 2018 or is it according with some other previous point in time or something like that? And should we change it to match the science? That I understand, I think. And I, does that sound like I understand that? Yep. Okay. Then what the fuck, why, you know, what does time binding have to do with any of this then? That's kind of like, okay, the accumulated knowledge of prior generations. Um, okay. Like, 
It's the capability to build on it. So if the mechanism, why can't it, we be talking about the mechanism being incapable of building on the accumulated knowledge? Uh, I don't know, maybe. I should have done this a long time ago. <laughs> Let's throw it out! I don't think we need time binding. I thought it would be useful and good in the analogy with the space binding, whatever, but it's failing, so fuck it. We don't need time binding. <laughs> Let's just talk about communicating. Let's just say our medium for communicating, for exchanging information betwixt human beings, be they in different generations or in the same living room. Okay. Let's just say that general semantics is the study of, the study and attempt to improve our medium of communication, our natural language, and then improve being defined as bring it into accord with the best epistemology available locally at our place and time. This is interesting. I'm curious. Are you throwing out time binding because, you know, this idiot here, I'm pointing at myself, doesn't get it? <laughs> or are you throwing it out because, you know, it's dawning on you now, you're like, eh, I don't know. I'm throwing it out because, or suggesting that we throw it out, because I don't think there's anything about the cross-generational aspect that's relevant to the to most of the rest of general semantics. Huh. That what what just matters is the communication part, the information exchange part. And it can just be you and me talking to each other. It doesn't have to be our grandkids. We don't have to Okay. All right. It just seems to be introducing unnecessary complications and we can still get at the important lessons without introducing those extraneous unnecessary complications or debatable points or misunderstandings. When I, I read Korzybski, he talks a lot about time binding, right? I mean, he's, it's not something he, he abandoned himself, it, you know? So I guess that's why I was thinking, Oh, this time binding shit's fucking important. I better get it. Yeah, I think he thought it was important. But again, it's apparently just a shitty meme, and people have a really hard time with it. And I don't think we need it. All right. Well, you don't think right now that we need it, and that's enough for this conversation, I suppose. Well, I mean, does that does that help or make sense if you do yep. agree for a moment? All right, fine. We'll just ditch time binding. <laughs> I'm just like, what and the And just fuck talk is... about how we've got language here, we've got science here, and then we try to bring our language into accord with what science says we ought to... Uh, that we want to make their structures isomorphic. Yeah, because I mean, my own, my my understanding up to this, up to today, when we started talking about time binding, uh, was you know like, and 
uh, it'll become better for me as we continue to talk. But just that, you know, general semantics, as you said, is a means of approving our communication. Um, I know you said probably more words than that, but um, but that there are all these ways to do that, you know. And one of those was, you know, you know, uh, acknowledging that the identity stuff doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Another one is that, you know, the map is not the territory. So remember, the, you're saying words, you know, you're not... I mean, this this map is not the territory thing, I think, is applied in many other cases. Like, uh, you know, one of the things that's always mentioned, I think, you know, we talked about climate last time, uh, you know, in climate science, you know, a lot of people are like, hey, man, the climate models aren't the climate thing that we're trying to talk about. You know, they're always, you know, saying you're, you're in love with your model and, you know, who knows what's going on. You know, this is your model. These are the things you accounted for. But that is not the thing necessarily, whatever that is, that we're trying to figure out, you know. So, you know, don't fall so head over heels with the thing that you're you're working on because you know, don't forget that it's just a model. It's just some symbols and some numbers you can crunch and, you know, use a computer and all that kind of stuff. So that, to me, those things all seem like, oh, yeah, means of communicating better. <laughs> so then when we're up to like, I continue to not get time binding. I'm like, oh, fuck, this is more complicated than I thought. Like, But if for the moment you want to just talk about it in the simple dumbed-down version for Dumb Dumb Ryan, then I think we're good. I don't even think that it's simple and dumbed-down to do that, but... Okay, cool. Next! Right, maybe we shouldn't have skipped over it so quickly... One of the motivations to even engage in an activity of this type would be that it's kind of predicated on accepting the linguistic relativity hypothesis. That we have deep suspicions that the language that we speak has an important influence on, in certain ways, to some extent, our thoughts and behaviors and maybe even perceptions. Because if we thought that it had literally no influence on our institutions, on our thoughts and behaviors, then I don't think general semantics would be important, or I don't know how it would be important. And I don't know if we should take that for granted or not maybe a separate episode to debate that i don't know well i i mean the thing I, I think of right off the bat is well would there be a general semantics if this wasn't an issue i mean isn't that the idea that language influences how we behave the thing that inspires something like general semantics in the first place well I'm confused again. The opinion <laughs> that linguistic relativity is has something to it could motivate the existence of general semantics, but the general semanticist could all just be nuts and wrong. I mean, uh, astrology is a thing, but we don't take for granted that it's saying anything accurate. You can't just reason from, well, 
There are books about this thing and institutes about this thing. It must have a reason to be. Oh. I, I thought you were asking, you know, <clears throat> you know, if if language doesn't have an effect on behavior, I don't know why general semantics would be important. Is that not what you were initially asking? I was asking if the language we speak has no influence on our subsequent behavior, general semantics would be quixotic. It would totally be windmill tilting, nonsense, waste of time, garbage, right? Because, yeah, you can work as hard as you want to reformulate language to match up with your favorite epistemology, but if it has no behavioral effects, then it would seems to me be pointless to your reformism would be to no effect right and i just thought that if you know something like general semantics is inspired by uh number one the science einstein and you know pavlov these you know um new ideas that come into play uh through empiricism and one can see how that has a big effect on, you know, the way we behave, the way we look at the world, the kinds of, you know, new goals we might acquire over time. To me, that would be an influence into, hey, you know, why not then really try and get the way we talk, which seems to be amiss with the things that we now have come to understand, you know, why wouldn't, uh, th to me, it just seems like that would be the way that the thing flows. It flows from Pavlov and Einstein into something like general semantics. Um, and general semantics wanting to, you know, say, you know, let's change the way we go about our business in communicating with each other. I, I don't know. I mean, I would just say, like, you say something to somebody in a very certain kind of tone of voice, and you say particular kinds of words that alters their behavior and they can say things that alt you know in reinforces it perhaps um uh yeah it just seems like it, it seems like you have the data and now general semantics is uh not a, i mean it's a theory but it's also a therapy you know that's that's come out of that i suppose and I don't know, I, I, I would just see, it, I, I guess all I'm trying to say is I see it the other way than coming up with an idea and then hoping that the data matches it. I'm failing to follow so many things tonight. <laughs> well, I mean, so no, I'm failing to communicate. <laughs> everyone agrees, most people agree, that... Language can affect behavior in this way, at least, right? Holy shit, there's a bus coming! Move, do something! Right, like, that can affect people. That's language. It changes the behavior of the person who is standing in the street about to be smushed. <laughs> such that they leap out of the way. All right, language has affected behavior. Whoop-de-doo. That's not what linguistic relativity is talking about. It would have to be something more subtle than that. It's if 
there is a word for something in your language, if it's included in your lexicon, does that make a difference? Or if there are structural factors about your language that influence something. A structural, for, for example, like uh, English is subject predicate. And I think certain things like Chinese and others are not. Do structural factors like that influence anything? Is there some extent to which there is a metaphysical stance taken by your language? And does that matter? Um, one of the things, another thing that Korzybski claimed was a part of English, he called the, that it's a, a, an additive or plus metaphysics. That because we're subject predicate, we say things like, the grass is green, and when we do that, or the leaf is green, or whatever, that we first have the subject, and somehow this bare subject plays its role without certain or any, question mark, properties, so that you can reference the leaf first and then add to it the property of greenness. So that there has to be some sort of Platonic or Aristotelian essentialist scholastic leaf that just is out there. And then we can talk about um, there's the essence and the accidents. Well, this leaf, it's a leaf essentially, but it's accidentally green. Later, the very same leaf identity will be brown or gold as fall comes and then it will fall. So noticing those sorts of facts about our language, is there are there metaphysical commitments in it? And then do those, to some extent, influence our behaviors? Everybody knows you can say, uh, Britney Spears is given a free concert in the park, and there will be a stampede. Well, that's language affecting behavior, but not in this sense. Mm -hmm. um, interesting. I'm not quite sure where to approach... Um, because I'm not quite sure what, <laughs> I'm not sure what, uh, why is, I guess I'm not sure. I understand the distinction. I don't understand, um, the, you know, the, the worry or whatever. I guess. Um, why isn't there some general understanding that language affects behavior in one way? It would be affecting behavior in all the various ways. You know, you tweak it a little here, tweak it a little there, it's going to affect the output. Um, and that it's, it's sensitive, you know, behavior is sensitive to the, you know, the, the, the linguistic objects and as to how they are arranged. Like, I, I don't know. I guess I'm not quite, that's why I was thinking that, <clears throat> you know, it, you know, the, the idea that behavior is naturally like that. You can say, 
oh, there's Britney Spears a free concert and everybody stampedes would be the the impetus, the initiator to then say, huh, you know, it looks like language has a big impact on people's behavior. You know, what are the other ways that we can try and investigate language to see how it might be impacting behavior? So that's what I was trying to say, was that it seems like you get general semantics because of this empiricist guy named Alfred Korzybski you know, was pretty enamored with that. And that then bled into him coming up with this idea, which was maybe a little more subtle take on some of the ways that language um, has had an impact. But, you know, nonetheless, I think it's a given that language has an impact on people's behavior, at least in these kinds of research endeavors. Three ways that I think we are reasons to worry about it. One of the questions that you asked, I think, somewhere earlier on in there was, all right, fine, even if we admit that language has impacts on behavior, why should we be concerned? No, why should we be concerned about whether or not general semantics has an influence on behavior? Because we already know that language has an influence on behavior. General semantics is taking a more, a different approach maybe it's drilling down a little deeper beyond just the basic command structure and behavioral responses that occur why are we worried that that project wouldn't have an influence i think the idea is that language already has an influence you know are you worried that the influence doesn't reach that certain level that Britney Spears is having a free concert in the park, guys. Does. Is that what you're trying to say? That is a, it's a dampened. There's just a buffer or whatever. And it just doesn't. You'll have to come up with your, um, I really like the way you title most of these episodes. And this one will have to have something to do with the comedy of errors and misunderstandings and that there was, uh, I don't know what, what movie was that. It's, I think we have a failure to communicate, or whatever that famous meme. Um, because, no, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying or asking, and I don't know why you're asking it. Well, this is, this, is, this is the whole project, is it not? Do we not exemplify this whole the study of the mechanism of talking better? And how it's hard? <laughs> Apparently, Apparently. <laughs> um, it could just be Doddler's Philosophy Podcast, September, whatever the fuck, 2018. So what I heard you say was something like, all right, well, let's take for granted that language influences thought and behavior. Are, aren't we worried now that general semantics doesn't? And I'm like, N- what? No, that's not even one of the choices in the matrix. If we admit linguistic relativity then it seems to be an entailment that general semantics would work because general semantics is the linguistic reform movement among other things and if language influences thought and behavior and then you have some movement that influences language then through doing so you will influence behavior the question is the the debatable point is the first one 
do we, or to what extent do we, want to admit that the language we speak, or structural aspects of the language we speak, influence our behaviors? Uh Uh-huh. And then I thought you were asking, okay, well, even... Why would we even bother to ask that question, or why would we be worried, or who cares, or why be concerned about the results of that one way or another? So were you saying that if English doesn't affect the way we behave, then general semantics is irrelevant? Yeah. But we just talked about how it affects the way we behave. That's where I was... uh, We must be talking past each other, because I think it's pretty clear... That you just demonstrated that it is, and so I'm not quite sure where the question comes from. Where are you going with this? What was your ultimate destination here? At some point in there, I was taking a step back from general semantics as a specific case of being a program to influence behavior through altering language. I was going to step back from that and say, well, do we even want to admit that the structure of our language influences our behavior? Because if not, then general semantics would be pointless. Okay. Why Why are you asking? <laughs> like, I, what? We are the indoctrinated. Why are you asking that question? Well, I was trying to stimulate discussion or debate. Well, you but sure it only fucking made did. things worse. No, it yeah. was, well, I don't know if it was a debate, but it was definitely talky talk. So, we've got no time binding anymore. We've got, we've got the is of identity stuff going on. Well, I mean, maybe not is of, well, sort of. And then we touched on map is not the territory. We went off-roading quite a bit. I already have the title for this thing figured out. So uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh you know we have talked about some of the tools. Um but like what what's the big what's the what's the thing you know we've we've even redefined the fucking thing of general semantics. Um what is the thing that ultimately, you know, should be done here? You know, uh, last time we talked about climate change and, well, we got to, you know, cut our carbon emissions and all that kind of stuff because we have a good sense now of the idea that we're taking carbon that's in the long-term storage and we're putting it into this more short-term duration uh, stores that are transferring it back and forth and it's increasing the temperature of the earth because of the greenhouse effect based, you know, based out of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We're being relentless in those pursuits. We should actually slow that down and now deal with how we can mitigate this process. What's that for this? To stick in terms of the map territory metaphor in part because that's the most famous meme that Korzybski got across the century mm-hmm. to 2018. What is the job of a map? Like, what makes a good map? 
it doesn't even attempt to express all of the territory, then it wouldn't be helpful. A map is an intentional abstraction. But which features you choose to include in your map, which isomorphisms you attempt to reflect, constitute the pragmatic application of said map. Well, this one, uh, I want to be able to select fishing spots in this lake. Well, I probably want a map, a topographic map that indicates different depth so that I can say, ooh, I want to go find this ledge over here or, oh, I think there's probably going to be some current alterations here and at that and they feed at the current breaks and I'm going to identify those by looking at this. So we have different projects, desires that we want to achieve and we make maps to help guide us toward successfully achieving said projects. So if in the analogy map equals English and territory equals reality, we want to be able to examine features of the map, what is English-like, and compare those to our best account of the territory, which would come from science, and then say, well, what would make a good map here? What would make a good language? What do we want to do? What do we have reason to suspect the territory is like? And how can we make a good map of said territory? And that would be another way, I think, to express the purpose of general semantics. It's natural language cartography. It's the study of how to make good maps. So, again, you know, you don't like odds and goods and whatever, <laughs> but um, it's relative to what we want to achieve. The goodness is defined by our own particular contingent concerns and projects. But we've got a picture of the territory that we get from our epistemically responsible endeavors, philosophy and science, whatever you want to call them. And then we've got the map that we've been handed down, the naturally selected mimetic evolution result that we call English. We can compare the map to the territory and see if we think our map is good, and then we can try to uh, draw a better map. So general semantics is drawing a better map in the sense of reforming language. Designing a set of tools to make our language better. It's cartography. Does any of that help? Well, yeah. I mean, I would think that would absolutely help for education. Right? You know, because how else are we going to learn <clears throat> the science if we're spe if we don't have a good uh match between the map and the and the territory. You know, um if our interest is 
you know, whatever the fishing analogy you had a, a little bit ago. Um, if our interest is catching the good fish or whatever, but we don't have, we're not incorporating um, features that help you do that, then, you know, you're just going to, it's going to be more up to chance. So I might use a certain way of phrasing things and I'm just kind of saying, well, I hope he understands what I'm trying to say because I haven't been specific enough or I haven't been detailed enough in the way that I'm saying whatever it is I'm communicating. And that's what I would think, you know, for our, you know, even for educational purposes, when we're trying to communicate, for instance, the actual science to high schoolers, physics or whatever. Um, <clears throat> if we use whatever the language is that we're using right now, that doesn't include a lot of the things in general semantics. Some of this stuff might be missed. Um, is my thinking in, a, in addition to the normal, just talking better aspect of it. Um, I wonder how much general semantics, if people applied that to their lives would help them uh, better understand or, or better understand um, how to make decisions about say voting um, or, you know, maybe it would make communication between elected officials and the people that elected them and not elected them better so that people had a better sense for what they actually really wanted to uh, understand or what they wanted to do in terms of a vote or whatever, um, rather than the, you know, taking advantage of word salad, which I think a lot of legalese tends to do. Um, and if you ever looked at a ballot and you tried to figure out what the, what was being said, um, if, you know, number one, if you don't know that particular way of talking, you might be in trouble. But also, I mean, if we don't, if we're not all up to speed, then we might not have been practiced enough to appreciate specific things that may be said or that could potentially be said. I don't know if that if we are still ships passing in the night on that one. Hmm. Uh, I do think in a citizenry of trained general semanticists, the political advertisements and speeches and debates would go very differently. Yes. Um, there's a ten, there's an element of responsibility. You know, we talked in the past um, a couple episodes ago about epistemic responsibility. Would you say that there's an element of responsibility that, you know, is kind of in, imbued in general semantics? Yep. I see the entire enterprise of the enemy skepticism stuff that we talked about where the claim of one ought not assert knowledge claims if you are sensitive to argument and care about accurately reflecting your epistemic position because everybody knows you might be mistaken about something. I think that I would see that entire enterprise as being a subtype of general semantics. It's asking people to change their linguistic behavior because of an epistemic result. Because I'm like, I'm going to present you a complex of arguments 
whose conclusion is, you should talk differently. Uh-huh. And that's, the in simple terms, that's basically what I see the purpose of general semantics as. Okay. Can we do lofty epistemology? Can we do philosophy and science and these, the best we can do epistemically, and then take those results and apply them to the way we talk? Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that goal. And just like I was saying near the beginning of this, to some extent, that succeeds and happens in that on the Daughterless philosophy, we do a lot of dating in the Korzybskian sense of applying dates to terms, to abstractions, not in the sense of uh, sucking on different ends of a spaghetti noodle across the table. Yeah. It's harder to do air quotes. But we can say, quote-unquote, I suppose. We can say, quote-unquote, and then, like I say, we can do the verbal italics by just saying... Oh, right, right, yeah. Well, you know, emergence. You can <laughs> just somehow set apart certain terms and draw attention to the fact that those are contentious or have multiple different connotations or multiple different meanings. Yeah. Yeah, doing that kind of stuff is generally semantic. Right. Right. Now, in the past... Just to throw in one... Well, what? No, go. Do it. Throw in one more. To throw in one more example that doesn't come from Korzybski, but rather from I, but I think is in a Korzybskian spirit, would be for similar reasons to the skeptical arguments from the previous episode. If anyone is convinced that they are fallible and might be mistaken about things and wants to strive for non-absolutist terminology, I think we should minimize the number of times we use definite articles and instead use indefinite ones. Don't say, well, I have the answer <laughs> to climate change or whatever. I've got the answer. Back off and just say, well, I have an answer. I have a suggestion. Because that opens up space for other people to say, all right, what's your suggestion? What's your argument for that suggestion? And you can have a discourse instead of it just being the dogmatic enterprise of stating, claiming, this is it. Here it is. This is the... Final word. Well, I have a word. I have some words. It's not the word. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of linguistic reform that could be suggested or that anyone could attempt to implement, as I do. Surely fail a lot because I was raised in a culture and linguistic community that says the all the time. I try to back off from those as much as I can, say A instead. And any time you work on that sort of project, you're doing general semantics. I'm I'm kind of, you know, shooting from the hip. I don't know if that's the right phrase or not. 
Um, maybe I'm spitballing here, but uh, when I was an undergraduate doing an honors thesis, I had in my title, the first word was the blah, blah, blah. And my advisor was like, you should change that to a blah, blah. Like, you know, he's like, it's not. Oh, nice. He was like, it's not definitively like young and or whatever, like, you know, but he, yeah. there was, he was, you know, but I don't know if that's a common thing in science. I think so. Um, that there's, that they yeah, I, back off right. the definitive I things. So. And uh, especially when, you know, science tends to encounter variation quite a bit. Um, and the whole multiple working hypotheses and blah, blah, blah. Um, <clears throat> I would. That's another theme that I noticed developing across our episodes as I'm more and more often saying, this is a place where it seems to me that scientists fare better than philosophers, and I wish we could emulate you a little bit. Philosophers instead say, here are the laws of thought, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and everything must be accord with them, otherwise you're not even doing philosophy. And the scientist is over there saying, I don't know that you should say the. Maybe I mean, here are some, here's some <laughs> suggested ways to think, but the laws of thought, come on, kid. Yes, the laws of thought. I have to I have to suggest I have to say something I did what yeah we can't put new with our rule we like after two hours no new ideas so uh do you have anything to to add on to what we've already said sir I think not. I'm ready to bail. I'm ready to bail. All right. Well, till next time, 1.5 listeners, we will be bringing you more content, more of the time. (laughs) Some content, some of the time. All the content, all the time. All right. Beep, 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 beep.